He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus, we thank you that you speak through your church. There are so many opinions floating around right now about what's right or wrong with the church. We all experience our own criticism, both internally and externally in our communities, about what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. We are really the only voice that matters is your voice. So God, fix our attention by the power of your spirit on you, what you have to say to us this morning. Would you open up our ears? Would you wake up sleepy hearts, sleepy souls, sleepy minds? God, would you speak to us this morning in a way that we can understand and we can respond? Thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to Revelation uh, chapter 3, which is where we've been uh, during this Lenten season, and we'll wrap up next week with the message to the church at Laodicea. This week we're going to be uh, talking about the church in Philadelphia, chapter 3, verse 7. I just want to read these words to you. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, from my God out of heaven, in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me start with a question this morning, and it might be uh, kind of a, a personal question, maybe, maybe too intrusive but it really gets to the heart of what's happening in this text. So I don't know some of you, and you may be like, why are you asking me weird questions like this? Uh, That's just what I do. Uh, But I want to start with this simple question. How do you respond in life when light gets shined on an area of weakness in your heart? And you feel that sense of, like, complete vulnerability. I don't know if you've ever felt this, but, like, something you're struggling with, something maybe hidden, something in the dark, something, some area where you feel so weak, so exposed, so vulnerable. All of a sudden, somebody, maybe a powerful person, maybe somebody that you respect, maybe somebody that you love, maybe somebody who's even abused you, 
shines a light on that vulnerability, exposes that vulnerability, seeks to exploit that vulnerability sometimes, but just calls it out. Maybe it's a, an addiction. Maybe it's some sort of uh, physical weakness that you've tried to hide. I mean, I don't know about you, but like in those moments, I, I run away, I shut down, I check out, I, I, try to, I try to numb, I try to pretend like it's not true, and I tell myself a story and try to create a story about what I wish were true. And, and the question I want to ask this morning is, what would it look like instead of running, instead of numbing, instead of pretending to be something that you're not, to actually just stand in your weakness? What would it be like to, to own your weakness and to find power in your powerlessness? This, this passage is all about power, what Jesus is talking about from start to finish. What would it look, be, look like for you to find strength in your weakness, to celebrate your vulnerability, and to find that is actually a source of a different kind of spiritual power? than what the world often values. This is the city and the church of Philadelphia. Now we all know uh, about Philadelphia. Um, we have a city obviously named after it, uh, the city of brotherly love. This Philadelphia was 28 miles southeast of Sardis. Again, these are cities uh, in modern day Turkey. And this was a, young, a relatively young city, not like some of the other ones that were older. And it was founded by Italus II, also named Philadelphos, so the city was named after him. It was founded in 140 BC, so less than 200 years old by the time this letter's written, or around 200 years old. This city was situated um, geographically. You need to know geographically what's happening because a lot of what Jesus is writing, he's speaking to a particular uh, city here. It was located on the edge of a highly volcanic area that both blessed the city with kind of a rich, fertile soil and these really curative hot springs, like, this is a thing, like, I, I don't have the money to do this, but, like, some people travel over to, like, Greenland and different places in Europe to, like, you know, sit in hot springs, uh, apparently not wearing a whole lot of clothes. Um, so this would be the place that you would go like that uh, if you had the resources to sit in these hot springs. So there was some blessing, but it also geographically was cursed because, as you know, around a, an active volcano, there's, there's frequent tremors and earthquakes and aftershocks. This city was actually severely crippled by uh, some earthquakes that leveled 12 Asian cities, including, including the city of Sardis we saw last week around AD 17. And it didn't just have an impact on the geography and, and the climate, but actually on the psychological impact because these aftershocks kept happening and tremors kept happening and it actually led the people to flee the city um, and actually some even to build transitional housing. So if, you, if you've lived around like a fault line before and you've experienced, some of you are from California, you've experienced massive earthquakes, you, you know what this feels like. Um, so they built like transitional housing on the, on the edges of the city and they lived in huts and booths. And when these tremors would kick up, they would leave and they would go to other cities. So there's this constant sense of fragility and vulnerability in every way that marked the city. Now, this is a, we, we've talked about the pattern of how Jesus addresses the churches. He gives them a vision of himself, of his character, his nature, his name, who he is, and he connects that to a particular struggle that's happening in the city. So there's usually, uh, he starts with an affirmation, 
and then he gives a correction. Now, this, like the city of Smyrna, this is a very similar passage to the church at Smyrna we looked at a couple weeks ago. There's no correction for this church. There's no heresy. There's no uh, compromise. There's no sexual morality that we know of. There's no uh, cultural idolatry that's happening. And there's no call to repentance. Notice how Jesus starts this word to the church. He, he starts with this vision of himself. And there's a contrast. And the contrast is between Jesus' power and the church's powerlessness. So, so pay attention to what Jesus is doing here. Jesus' power and the church's powerlessness. He wants to say something about the intersection of those realities. So he starts and he says, thus says the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens doors, who opens and no one will close and closes, no one will open. I know your works. I've placed before you an open door that nobody other than me can close. So what Jesus is doing here is he's using <clears throat> a door. He's talking about keys. He's talking about a pillar. These are all references to power and authority, in, biblically speaking. Remember, all the imagery in the book of Revelation is drawn from the sociocultural context of Rome and the cities in Rome at that time and Old Testament prophetic literature. And this idea of an open door would have been so familiar to a Jew, but for us, it's, it's a little bit different than the way we think about open doors. So this idea of open door um, is used in two senses in this passage in the book of Revelation. It actually shows up many times. The first sense is Jesus is referring here to a power to open a door to a relationship with himself. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm open to you. I'm a God who, who comes to you, who wants to give you access, right? Opening doors is about access. I wanna give you access to the loving power and presence of, of God. Now, culturally, we talk about opening doors, right? Like we have a sense of this. Um, when we talk about people opening doors for us, um, it's usually a reference to someone who has social power or social capital, and they, they leverage that for the good of other people. We think of influencers or, or brokers, relational brokers, like like a you know that friend who just knows everybody. Like we have a couple of those in our church. They're just mavens, and they know everybody. They grew up here, went to school here. I remember moving in as an outsider. Emily and I literally didn't know anybody. We would go to Kroger and like hunt down friends in the grocery line and stuff. And and meeting people who know people and who can open up doors for you was sweet. It was amazing to meet somebody who knew people and who could be like, yeah, let me introduce you to my friend. There's a certain social capital, especially now, especially with younger people, right? Like, we don't want to be advertised to. We need people to personally open doors for us. We're wary of anything slick and overly, you know, advertising. Think about a manager that has an open door policy. If you're a manager, right, like it's kind of in vogue, like managers used to be like disconnected and like cruel and mean and detached. And now it's like, no, man, I'm cool. I have an open door policy. Well, there's not really open door. I have an open door Zoom policy right now during the pandemic. You can have access to me whenever you want. Now, the way that that works in our culture is it's usually uh, based on, not usually like altruism, it's usually based on an assumption, often an unspoken assumption of reciprocity. Like, I'm gonna do this for you and you're gonna do this for me, kind of a quid pro quo. Um, or like a meritocracy, like I'm gonna do something for you 
And then when, when I'm in a time of need and I'm working my way up the ladder, I need you to, to reciprocate and open doors for me. This is what Roman culture was all about. It was an aristocracy and a meritocracy both. And it was all about opening doors for other people. And the way that that works is you have to have usually, I mean, you guys know this, like the right resume. You have to have the right, sometimes, connections. For people to open doors for you, you have to come sometimes from a certain kind of family. If you live in a small town in Indiana, you grew up in a small town, you know what I'm talking about. There's just certain names and families that can open doors and others that close doors. Maybe you have to be from a certain racial background to have access to those doors. Maybe a certain, certain socioeconomic status. You have to speak a certain kind of language with no intonations or evidence that you're not a native speaker to have access to those doors. Sometimes you have to be educated. I've, I, I, I experience this all the time. I went to the University of Kentucky. Do you know like how li, like not enthusiastic most of you are about the fact that I went to UK? So many doors are open to you in our community here in Midtown. If you went to Butler, if you went to Indiana, if you went to Purdue, if you went to Notre Dame, but Kentucky, not so much in our community. I experienced this as a young adult uh, really dramatically. Uh, my, I, I became a Christian as a teenager in a large, one of the largest Protestant denominations in a, in a church in Louisville, and it was a mega church. And uh, my, when I kind of got called to ministry and started to get involved with ministry, I was invited on staff at this church. And it was a large church at the time, a couple thousand people. And man, this was, a, this was a powerful, powerful church. Like in this denomination, this was the epicenter of power. We had the most, some of the most powerful Bible teachers and scholars and theologians in the country. We had seminary presidents in our church. We had a, a pastor who could run a Fortune 500 company, like a CEO type. We had all kinds of, you know, powerful people in our community there. And I experienced what, what it's like to have doors open for you as a 23-year. Like, some of you know what this is like. You, you come into a company that's powerful. It could even be a startup that's like a, you know, fast rising. And you, you experience and you have access to open doors that your peers couldn't imagine. I mean, like, you know, you went to Taylor University. And that just, like, opens doors for you. That doesn't open for other people. Doors of teaching. I was able to speak in front of thousands of people. Doors of leadership. I, I, I helped write a book when I was in my 20s. What do I even know about anything? And I'm writing a book in my 20s. I'm speaking at conferences and retreats. I have a free education given to me. I'm able to get a master's in theology and a doctorate in leadership because I'm a part of this church. It was just door after door opening for me. People are like, you're gonna be a mega church pastor one day. And I'm like, yeah, all right, that sounds awesome. I don't even know what that means, but great. It's like a farm system, you know? But I also experienced later on into my 20s and 30s, the dark side of that door opener. Because as fast as you can rise in a system like that, when you get on the other side of it and you don't conform to the powers that be, you can also experience doors shutting in your face. Now, maybe some of you have experienced that. Those same people betray you. You don't live up to their expectations. 
And all of a sudden you find yourself excluded, not invited into those spaces, people blacklisting you, refusing to speak to you, not returning your phone calls, slandering you, blackballing you. That's, that's the reality of like what opening and closing doors. I mean, this is, this is a community that would have understood open and closed doors. Jesus is speaking to a community who had the doors of power shut in their face. They'd experienced literally the synagogue door. We talked about this in Smyrna. The synagogue door, door shut in their face because the Jews didn't want to identify with Christians for fear that they would lose tax-exempt status. They would lose business. They would lose money. They would lose power and influence. So they were excommunicated. They were excluded. They were persecuted. They were marginalized. So Jesus is speaking to this church, and he's answering this question. What do you do when the doors of power and influence and access and relationships and success slammed in your face? Jesus' answer is one word, look. This word, look, three times in this passage, 19 times in the book of Revelation, one of the key words in the book of Revelation can be translated behold, fix your attention on something else. What he's saying here is you must learn to change your optics. You must learn to change the way you see reality. Step back when that door is slammed in your face. And you must experience a conversion of the imagination. You must learn to see the fullness of reality, not the narrowness of the reality that you're experiencing right now. He says, look. In, in, in Revelation, it's always, look at me, is what Jesus is usually saying. Look to me. And then he goes on to describe his power. Yes, you may feel powerless, and you are powerless. But look to the Holy One. Look to the true one. I have the key of David. The backdrop to all of this, and we don't have time, I would love to take you into Isaiah and just give you 30 minutes in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. The backdrop for all this is found in Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 22. In Isaiah 40, this whole passage, some of our favorite um, references from the book of Isaiah are found in Isaiah chapter 40. This is a word of comfort, so, so keep in mind, a word of comfort to exiles, who are completely powerless. Everything happening around them is outside of their control. They feel literally ignored. They feel not seen. That's, that's actually what uh, Isaiah mentions. Why do, why do you say, verse 27, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from God, and my right is disregarded by God, or my, 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 my <clears throat> lawsuit is being ignored. And, and this passage is amazing. He says, comfort, comfort my people. Those who feel powerless, every valley will be lifted up, every mountain will be brought low. You know what that means? That means all of those things that seem imposing and powerful, all the institutions, all the structures, all the people who seem powerful in your eyes one day will be humbled. And everybody who's humble, everybody who's down at the bottom, everybody who's outcasted, everybody who feels powerless in the valley will be lifted up. This is a vision of the, the new kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth. All humanity is grass, he goes on to say. The grass withers, the flower fades, but what? The word of God stands forever. 
all of that stuff that feels permanent, all of those people that feel powerful, it's a mirage. It's an illusion. What he's saying is there's an instability to power. It tends to erode and change quickly. But God and his presence and his word are permanent. He closes chapter 40 with these words. To whom will you compare me? That I should be like them, says the Holy One. Jesus is saying, I like Yahweh am the powerful one. It's an invitation for them to trust him. That's why he goes on to say, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings, with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. To a church that is fainting, to a church that is experiencing profound vulnerability, Jesus says, wait for me, I'm coming. I am powerful. I have all authority. He says, I have the key of David. This is a reference to Isaiah 22. Eliakim, who was the steward of the the riches of of the palace of King David, the one that had all the authority, the big keys, right? He's the one that walked around with the big keys. If you have the keys to the palace, you're a powerful dude, right? In other words, he has the authority to open and shut the door to the king himself. Eliakim here is being used as a kind of prototype of Jesus, of the Messiah. And the house of David is a reference to the kingdom of God. the city of God, the temple of God, the riches of God, the presence of God, right? Remember, the temple is that liminal space, that thin space between heaven and earth where we encounter the divine. In other words, Jesus is saying, I have the power. I have the power because of my life, the life that I've lived, the, the death that I died, the resurrection I accomplished, I have the power to open the door of God's presence to you. And it doesn't work on quid pro quo reciprocity. It doesn't matter your performance. You don't have to be worthy enough. I'm making you worthy because of who I am. I give you access, not because of your background, your education, your ethnicity, who you know or don't know, where you went to school. Everyone, all of you have access to the very life and the power and the love and the presence of God. That's what he's wanting to make known to this community through this group of weak people. He says, one day they're gonna bow down to you. It's another reference to Isaiah chapter 61. They're gonna bow down to you and they're going to know, not that you're powerful, they're gonna know that you are my beloved community. That's what he's saying. They're gonna know that I love you by the way that you respond to these closed doors. the same thing Jesus said in John chapter 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief, that is the evil one, comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it super abundantly. 
is it says, you may have the synagogue door slammed in your face. But look, you have 24-7 unmitigated access to my love. That is what you need for true life. It is to have access to communion with me. You are my beloved community. Nobody can shut the door to that access. You are a VIP and you always have access to this table. That would be an encouragement to an oppressed community. But he goes on. He, he contrasts his power with the church's powerlessness. Look, I've placed before you this open door, this open door of relationship, this open door of community. You have access to my, my love anytime that you want it. Everybody's welcome. Look, I've placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power. Yet you have kept my word. You have not denied my name. You have kept my command to endure patiently. You're a patient church in the midst of suffering. And he draws attention, our attention here to the church's powerlessness, the church's weakness. He says, I see that you have but little power. This word here is the word mikros, from which we get micro. You have the tiniest, the tiniest little bit of power. You are a micro power church. Nobody's writing books about this church. This is probably a small, small church. You have micro power. But here's the crazy thing. And here's where the second door comes, the second sense of the open door comes in. This is actually the reality that I'm gonna use for opportunities for the advancement of, the, of my mission in the world. The, the idea of open door in the New Testament often refers, you could read this in 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 2, Colossians 4. The open door that he's talking about is the open door for mission. It's the open door for missional presence, missional fruit in the world. Joining God in his, renew, his project of renewal in the world. You see, Philadelphia was strategically located on a highway that connected Europe to the east. And it was located on the border of some really important cities, Mysia, Lydia, and Phrygia. And so it was established initially as what literally the Romans called it a missionary city. It's crazy. Missionary city. But it was not to be a missionary of Jesus. It was established to be a missionary of Greco-Roman culture. Spread the language, spread Greco-Roman arts and literature and practices and temple worship and cultic uh, loyalty to the emperor, imperial cult worship to these newly annexed areas around Philadelphia. So Paul, so it's Paul, uh, John and Jesus here are saying, you are a missionary city for Rome. Now I'm going to make you a missionary city for the spread of of the gospel of the kingdom. But notice how this happens. It happens through weakness. Their lack of power is the very thing that Jesus will use to spread his mission. I love the way that uh, Marva Don, one of my favorite theologians, in her book, Joy and Weakness, she, she herself is a person who, as she says, experiences lots of physical weakness. She's a person with all kinds of disabilities. And she writes this, her commentary on Revelation is actually written through the lens of a person that experiences great physical weakness. 
she draws attention in a way that actually no other scholar I know of does to the idea of strength and weakness, the paradox of strength and weakness. Here's what she writes. It is amazing that in his holiness, which is what we just read about, the Holy One of Israel, Christ can look at our weakness and commend it. What do powerful people do when they look at the weak? They pity it. They mock it. But he says, she says, Christ in his power and authority looks at our weakness and commends it. How different the values of Christ are from those of the world, which praises, how does power work in the world? Praises those who are beautiful, those who are successful, those who are rich, those who are ambitious, those who are skillful, those who are powerful. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't want you to be not ambitious, right? Like, I don't want you to do that purposefully, but she's saying this is the way that it works in the world. In contrast, the holy set apart one sets apart those who know they are not at the top of the ladder. He who is true praises those who know the truth about their inadequacies. And they do not claim, I love this phrase, any false superiority. He knows them truly. He sees their hearts. He sees their weaknesses. That they do not falsely pretend to be greater than they are. And so he gives them unrestricted access. The sky isn't even the limit to what they can do in his name. God wants us to grasp that the open door is set before those who have little strengths. The open door of mission is not set before the powerful. It is not set before those who have a sense of superiority, who pretend to be more than they are. It's just set before ordinary people who are like, yeah, I'm vulnerable. I'm weak. I feel my weakness. That's what he's gonna use to spread mission, spread the good news about his name, our weakness. He's not gonna use those grasping for power. He's not gonna be using those trying to get access to the upper echelons of institutions and social networks and neighborhood friend groups. You know, all the different areas that we kind of, kind of seek power and seek uh, kind of entrance and access in our everyday lives. Marriages, families, schools, education, networks, industries. Now, I don't know about you, but like this strikes a chord with me. I, in the last year, have probably never felt my weakness more profoundly than in 2020. Do you feel your weakness? I mean, as a pastor, do we open the church or shut the church? Do we wear masks or we don't wear masks? Who do we vote for? What does community look like? Every week, and I don't, I don't say this to like help, have you pity me, but it's like every week I am criticized, we are criticized for not doing enough of this, doing too much of this, getting away from this. And often they're right. Yeah, I miss that. When I was in the fetal position in my closet last week, I did miss a few things. I feel weak. I feel vulnerable. The question is, what do we do with that? I told you how I respond. I, I want to hide. I want to I power up. I want to double down and 
research and, and gain knowledge so that I can show you that I'm not, not actually weak. You think I'm weak, but let me show you how I'm not weak. I want to defend myself. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. My grace, the Lord says to him, Jesus says to him, is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect, complete, full in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. This is crazy talk. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. There's something about this upside-down kingdom of Jesus that when we are at our weakest, we are actually at our strongest. And the key is learning to own our weakness. Like, I don't know about you, but like, I don't know if you feel weak in this moment, but I know many of us do feel weak. We feel like we have little power. And, and God doesn't want us to try to pretend to be anything other than we are. He's gonna use our weakness. He promises here to this church with little power. He says, I'm gonna use your weakness to draw attention to my strength and my power. And so the temptation when we feel weak and the temptation I fear for us, even as we bend a corner here on this pandemic, hopefully in the next few months and people get vaccinated and, and that's great. We should, we should pray for and work for wholeness and restoration as much as we can. But in the midst of that, my fear is that those of us who've been feeling weak, who've been forced to be dependent and cling to Jesus in moments of weakness, we will be tempted to rush back to a position of independence and self-sufficiency. Oh man, it's over. Now I can go back to rebuilding my resume. Now I can go back to feeling competency, uh, feeling a sense of competency. We've always been weak. 2020 just showed it to us in a really profound way. Put it right in their face. You think you're strong. You can't even defeat a microbe. You're weak. Church, you let elections tear you apart. You're weak. I mean, how many of us just feel weak? And we long to get back to self-sufficiency. Like many of us this year have lost family members both to COVID and not. I've been to so many funerals the last couple of weeks and visitation. People have lost family members. We've been marginalized from our families because of politics maybe. We, we experience emotional struggles. Many of us are in the depths of depression and sadness, anger and rage we've never experienced in our life. Yelling at our children, abusing one another, feeling scared and weak talking to some friends recently who have foster children in their home. And many of you have taken children, refugee children, into your homes during this season. And you feel weak, vulnerable. Some of you have children with extreme disabilities. Some of you have children with less severe, but nonetheless real disabilities. And you feel talking to so many singles, trying to figure out, like, what does dating look like? What does it look like to, to be strong while I'm alone and feeling utterly abandoned by everyone? We're living in this moment 
It's, it's like a, what the Bible would call like a kairos moment. Chronos is time. Kairos is like one of these moments where we have an opportunity, we, where we feel our weakness like we're not used to feeling our weakness. And in this moment, I think there's two choices. One, we can fear and we can panic and we can freak out. And as we feel increasingly marginalized, kind of individually and as a church and whatever, at least certain segments of the church, we can try to grasp for power and we can have this anxious presence in the world. Or, because, because weakness is a threat if our main concern is protecting power. It's always a threat to the powerful. Or, we can see this as an opportunity for those who are seeking real spiritual authority, who are seeking real, true power that comes from Jesus. We can own our weakness. We can stand in our weakness. And we can say, yeah, I'm weak. I feel helpless. I feel mentally weak. I feel emotionally weak. I feel relationally weak. Like literally, I feel like all my friends have moved on and here I am alone. What do you do in that moment? We can claim our weakness. And we can hear Jesus say to us, in your weakness, I'll be strong. If you'll sit in that if you won't deny that, you won't run away from that, you won't pretend to be something that you're not, you're going to experience my power in a way that you never have before in your life. And it's gonna lead to all kinds of open doors for mission in the world because when we are weak, isn't this amazing? I don't know if you ever found this to be true. When you are weak and you are in a position of being powerless, all of a sudden your field of vision gets cleansed a little bit and you start to look around and you start to notice the other people who are also weak you start to see the other people who are also powerless that maybe you would have never seen in a season of strength because your, your eyes were only on the future and only on who could advance your career and advance you personally. And all of a sudden you start to see your neighbors who are weak, who are scared, who are afraid. You start to see your family members in their fear rather than just in their you know, slogans and political ideologies. You start to see the poor in a different way. You start to see orphans and refugees and minorities and the sick. You start to remember there are people languishing in nursing homes right now who nobody is coming to see. And you start to say, wow, how can I take the power that Jesus has given me and open myself up to that? That's the open doors that he's talking about. This is how the early church grew. They grew through their weakness in persecution. Literally, doors closed to outsiders because they're so afraid for their own lives. They multiplied and grew and became a powerful movement. Not because they had some great evangelistic strategy, some great missional strategy that they had whiteboarded and branded and put out on social media and invited people to kickstart. No, they grew in their weakness, a bunch of Weak men and women and orphans and slaves and elderly people living their lives in front of their friends, demonstrating the power of God in their commitment to nonviolence, in their commitment to obedience, in their commitment to loving each other, kissing each other across racial and ethnic and class lines in a way that would have been scandalous. That's the invitation for us. Jesus says, 
Hold on to what you have. You feel weak. You feel powerless. Don't deny it. Don't try to transcend it. Don't try to run away from it. Stand in it. Own it. And when you do that, this is the great promise. Jesus says, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. What appears weak in this world, Jesus says, becomes the very foundation of God's presence and power in the new city of Jerusalem that's coming down to earth. This is the promise. Like there was, there was something that happened in that day. Philadelphia was called Little Athens because of the number of temples in the city. When a powerful person who had served the state well, a, a noble or a magistrate or a public benefactor or a priest, when they, when they died, one of the ways they would memorialize them because they had given so much money to the city is they would erect a pillar in one of the temples and they would inscribe their name on it. Here lies a powerful person who's the foundation for the city of Philadelphia. That's imagery that he's drawn on here to say, hey, this is what God does with powerless people. This is what God does with weak people. He makes them a pillar in his temple. I mean, can you imagine that? Like, just let your imagination go to that place. The kingdom of God here on earth, walking our community, we as the people of God, weak and powerless, despite our best efforts to try to do otherwise. And we walk through the city of God. And Jesus says, there's a temple, a pillar of the temple. There's Michael, a temple, and a pillar. There's Megan. There's Rebecca. There's Drew. There's Ryan. There's Anne. A pillar in the temple of my God. Jesus comes to give power to the powerless. We have an open door in front of us that no one can shut. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good news. That we can be vulnerable. And in our vulnerability, the most powerful one in the universe, the one whose eyes are the only eyes that matter, whose voice is the only voice that truly matters, in our vulnerability and our weakness, does not seek to crush us, does not seek to exploit that, does not ask us to deny it, but actually asks us, asks us to confess it. And in just a great reversal, makes our weakness the very center of our power. Because we have access to your love. We have access to your grace. Jesus, you have come and you have lived a life that we couldn't live. You have died a death that we should have died. You've risen from the grave to give hope to your people, hope to the powerless, hope to the oppressed, hope to the weak. And you promise to make us a pillar if we will but trust you with our weaknesses. So God, I pray you would open doors for this church I pray that you would make us a weak church. We are weak, but help us to see our weakness, to be a community that boasts in our weakness, a community that is not afraid to say, I am weak and I need God. I am weak and I need other Christians. I am weak and I need the power of the Holy Spirit to sustain my life in the world. I am weak this week as I go out into the world and I feel lonely and abandoned and discouraged and vulnerable. So God, in our weakness, you make us strong. Help us to live that reality this week as your church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.